How can you do all that needs done in life and still pursue your desire to learn French or the guitar or grow a plant or make art? You can't put a fiddle under your pillow and wake up playing it, though how cool would that be? But one thing we can do, no matter how chaotic and overwhelming life can be, is know that every tiny small motion in the direction of those endeavors really do matter. And not only that, they add up over time with great momentum. Join me, Annie Fane Barillon, as I interview painters and gardeners, designers and musicians, photographers and cooks, creative livers of any kind, who have somehow, in the middle of it all, continued on their creative paths, no matter what. This is Fane House Radio, and I'm so glad you're here. My name is Annie Erpson, and the most creative and Endeavor of my life is probably not what you would expect. Um, I used to be a physicist and specifically I did radiation physics. That is the most wildly creative thing I've ever done. Like I'm a maker, I do a lot of different artistic pursuits, but you know, the forms of art that I do just cannot touch the just raw creative energy of physics, which probably sounds strange if, if you've never gone down that rabbit hole. But it's like you have this toolbox of, you know, math and you can use that to figure out literally everything about the universe, known and unknown. And there is no limit to it. It can get really, really weird and you can get to a lot of weird places in a lot of strange meandering ways. And it always felt like I was flinging mud and flinging paint and just kind of painting with math in a way that just feels pretty wild. Yeah, it's just really, it's really hard to approach that with any other method, I guess. And do you have a spot for that in your life at the moment? Do you have no, an outlet I, for it? I haven't done that for work in 10 or 15 years. I wish I had an outlet for it, but unfortunately, as close as I get now is inscribing equations on to the ceramics that I do. <laughs> And trying to explain, you know, quantum mechanics to my two-year-old, which <laughs> she actually, she's a pretty good grasp on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And you do a range of different things and we'll talk about some of them. And I know that music is a big, big one. And that also there are various other family members you have that play music. And what did music mean to you and your family as a child, would you say? I grew up in a musical family. My dad, Wayne Erpson, he's a multi-instrumentalist. He's written many dozens of music instruction books and songbooks. I work with him now in that business. My mom, she played fiddle and banjo and bass when she was pregnant with me. She didn't keep doing that. But um, when I was a child, there was always a lot of music in the house. Always on the weekend, you know, I'd wake up and I'd go down and there'd be a big jam happening in the kitchen. Often there'd be music parties at the house. I was brought to old time fiddlers conventions from, you know, the time I was a baby. Pretty much all of my childhood memories, I can hear old time music as the soundtrack in my head to it. And what it's always meant to me is community and a way of connecting with people and to communicate with people. Also specifically a way of connecting with and communicating with my father. You know, when you play music with someone, it's just a very special connection that you make in that moment. And it's really hard to get that any other way. I kind of think of it, it's like hanging out together, but you're not talking. I mean, you'll talk between tunes, 
but you're hanging out and communicating, but it's not with words. You're getting in the zone together. And like you're saying, in a way that you can't really do any other way. Yeah, it's it's communicating and making something at the same time. And also, I like that, you know, it's fleeting and it makes it more precious. Yeah. When you were a teenager, did you resist learning the old time music and that kind of stuff? Or did you have to go away from it to come back to it? (laughs) Well, when I was a teenager, I refused to play anything except for waltzes. I only played waltzes and I mostly played the fiddle at that time. Yeah, I played waltzes. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It wasn't really so much, you know, rebellion as it was. That's what I liked. I didn't really like bluegrass that much old time. Like I like to listen to it, but I just didn't get a lot of satisfaction out of playing it at that time. But I loved me a waltz. So I played a lot of those. And then once I went to college, I started playing contra dance music and Irish music. And I would joke that playing those forms of music, you know, were my form of rebellion. Really, it was only kind of half a joke because I did need to get out from under my father's shadow and to play music in a community where, you know, I wasn't someone's daughter. I was myself. And that was really important to me. And you came upon other genres as well, because you play swing guitar and you played some bow folk. Can you talk about both of those a little bit? Yeah. Between, uh, when was it? I guess 2007 and 2014, I was in Italy or living there for most of that time. Because at the time I was married to a man from Northern Italy. And so I lived up in the Alps in the Northwest. It turned out that, you know, our community there, they played different kinds of traditional European folk music, including bell folk. And so I quickly, you know, fell into that crowd and, you know, learned to play these different kinds of traditional music and found myself in a bell folk band playing for the dances up there <laughs> in the mountain villages. It was really fun. We also had an old time band that started up and that was pretty funny. People had just never heard anything like it. Yeah, I like playing dance music no matter what it is doesn't really matter the genre. I like anything that's kind of community dance music. So I got into swing music because in 2014, shortly after I moved back to the U.S., I injured my foot pretty badly and I couldn't dance anymore. And I've always been really big into swing dancing and other dance forms. And a friend suggested I learn to play swing fiddle. I tried it and I quickly realized I didn't know enough about fancy music stuff to pull it off (laughs) because I'm an old time musician, really. So I decided to try it on guitar and then I got obsessed with it and started practicing 10 hours a day. And then pretty quickly friends started putting me in their bands because it turns out there's a shortage of rhythm swing guitar players. And coming from old time music, it gave me the interest and ability to be able just to play simple rhythm all night long without getting bored of it. And that is kind of hard to come by. Apparently I just started doing that. And then I found myself in a dozen or so swing bands and was playing all around the country and just kind of felt really weird. Cause I'm like this person, I don't read music. I don't know music theory. I play mostly by ear and I'd be playing in these bands, you know, with all these people with PhDs in music theory. And I felt kind of like a fish out of water, <laughs> but you know, I think people 
wanted me in there because I make the music sound old and dancey. You're right. There's a difference between being a dance musician and a concert musician. It is different. You're paying attention to rhythm and beat in a totally different way. And it makes people want to move. And it's just really different approach. I think that's fun when people say they really like playing for dancers. It's bold and brave of you to kind of jump in, like you're saying, <laughs> to the waters where people might be knowing more of the music theory and reading the music and everything. I think that's brave. I mean, I've always made it my goal to try to be the worst musician on stage, you know, not in the sense that I want to play badly, but I like to play with people who are better than me because it pushes me and I learn a lot. At the moment, aren't you in an all-lady swing band? I am. We, I guess a week or so ago, we actually had our first show in about two years since, you know, the world went weird. Yeah, so that band is called the French Broads. I play guitar in that. And then I also had the first rehearsal for another trad jazz swing band that's yesterday. I don't know the name of it yet, but <laughs> to be announced. <laughs> yeah, it'll it'll be something. I'm playing yeah. an upright bass in that one. Oh, nice. You're also a avid cook. In this moment, you have a pie in the oven. Is it time to check it? I do need to check my pie. Okay. Hold on just a moment. <laughs> okay, the pie needs about three more minutes. Okay, three exactly on the dot. Something like that. <laughs> it's a it's a lemon cake pie. Ooh, yum. I know your mom also is a cook and teacher. You both teach together sometimes. And one of your specialties is gluten-free cooking out of necessity of your own needs. Tell us about your discovery of being gluten intolerant and how it has felt to share gluten-free cooking with others. Well, when was it? I guess it was 10 years ago. I figured it out. Um, before that, I had been sick for about 10 years, a lot of different health problems. I was in and out, out of the hospital constantly, and it was pretty scary. And doctors could never figure out what was going on. And at the time, I... <laughs> I was living in Italy and I had an artisan soap making business that I did there for my full-time job. And I read an article about, you know, asking the question, should cosmetic producers make their products gluten-free? And it talked about celiac disease and talked about the symptoms. And I read it and I went, oh my gosh, that that's, that's me. They just described what I have going on. And so I tried a gluten-free diet and I got 100% better. Like it just was pretty magical and revolutionary to not feel awful all the time. And that was pretty heartbreaking for me because I'm really into baking and cooking and come from a foodie family. My mom's written 11 cookbooks. You know, we make a lot of pies and a lot of bread in our family. <laughs> you know, coming around the table for a slice of pie is a really important way of sharing love to me and to my family. It was kind of heartbreaking to feel like that was taken away from me. Not to mention I was living in Italy. Like, you know, <laughs> food is how people connect there too. And, but luckily I was living in the North where it's more polenta and rice-based instead of pasta. And there's a lot of knowledge about celiac disease and all of that there. So it was... Not that bad. I But the first thing I did was try to figure out how to make a gluten-free pie crust. And my first attempt, I remember it was really hard. Couldn't cut through it. I took it, threw it at the wall, bounced off, 
completely intact. <laughs> it was, it was really bad. It was really, really bad. So then I approach everything like a scientist. I can't help it. So I started keeping spreadsheets, tracking different gluten-free experiments and, you know, made probably a few hundred test pies and came up with a method in a flour blend that pretty perfectly replicates gluten pie. And I've, I've won some pretty big pie contests with that crust. So I think it's kind of, it stood up against more than a hundred gluten pies and beat the pants off of them. So I figure, (laughs) I figure I did it right. So I really like sharing gluten-free baking with people because there's really a sense of missing out, not only on eating the foods, but on being able to connect with people when you can't share food with someone and giving people the skill set so that they can forge those connections and enjoy those foods. It's really satisfying. I like seeing people be happy when, when they can eat something that they thought they'd never have again. Yes, exactly. I mean, one recipe that you've shared with me is sourdough bread, gluten-free sourdough. I mean, and it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's definitely a feeling of amazingness when you're used to saying no to so much. And like you're saying, you ha- you're always keeping those things distant from you and to just have it is very fun, maybe dangerously so. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. <laughs> I need to check on my pie. Hold on. Yep. Okay. Look at that beautiful pie. That is gorgeous. Anybody who goes to watch the video, you get to see the pie in the pan. Oh my gosh. I bet it smells so good. It does. I want to eat it. It's my favorite pie. Yeah. (laughs) That's the thing about pies. You want to eat them. One thing that you've been sharing about more lately is your experiments with clay. How did that come about? Like, are you producing for fun? Are you producing to sell? And tell us a little bit about the scraffito and what that means. So I got into pottery, I guess, first about five years ago. After coming back from teaching a class at the John C. Campbell Folk School, because whenever I go there, I always get inspired and I'm like, oh, I want to make everything. I just, I need to make all of it. <laughs> yeah. And I love handmade pottery, but I always assumed that I would hate it. I'm not good at like sitting down and being still, but I decided to take a class because I just needed to get it out of my system and prove that I don't like it and be done with it. I did that. I fell in love with it. (laughs) I got, you know, pretty obsessed with it, which is what I do when I find a new art form that I like is I just throw myself completely in it and can't think about anything else until I move on to the next thing. So I got really into it. I've been taking classes at Odyssey Center for the Ceramic here in Asheville and fire my pots there. Mostly up until recently, I was just doing it for myself, you know, to be able to make nice things for my own kitchen. But more than that, it's just the process. I find it so grounding and necessary. It's really hard for me to keep my feet on the ground and not to have my head floating off into the sky. So any kind of activity that feels really grounding is really good for my mental health and emotional health. And doing ceramics really fills that and specifically doing things on the wheel. I keep 
coming back to surface design techniques, especially sgraffito, which is where usually you paint something on the body of the clay before it's all dried out, when it's leather hard, either slip or underglaze, and then you carve away. For years, I was just doing different geometric patterns, but lately I've been doing a lot of everything, I guess, is plants. I didn't realize that. It was kind of by accident. I've been doing some different kind of springtime garden motifs and leaves and root veggies is one that I'm liking a lot. It's There's kind of like a funny crossover because um, during the pandemic, I got really into stamp carving, which turned into doing a lot of block printing. And then I started selling all of that and it kind of a lot. It really surprised me. What I'm doing on my pottery now, it's pretty much exactly the same as my stamps and my block prints. Like doesn't feel any different. And actually the root veggie motif that I've been doing, I first made stamps out of that and made my kid a, you know, a little pop-up book with vegetable gardens and stuff. And so I copied that into clay. I, you know, stole ideas from myself, I guess. I guess we all probably do that. Yeah. But now people have been wanting to buy the veggie things. So um, I've been selling them. Well, it's fun what you're saying, because it's almost like just through the action of you making a lot of of it, of all these things, that a style is revealing itself. Your style is coming through just from making it a lot. Not that you had this intentional desire to make a line of plant-based ceramics. You know, I think that's really cool. It's entirely by accident. And then I've been looking across like everything that I've been doing, like also this quilt behind me. And then I've realized that everything kind of matches and has the same sort of aesthetic. And it's way cutesier than I imagine as my aesthetic. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think of myself as like this cutesy person, but apparently that's where I am. (laughs) I think it's happened since I had my kid almost three years ago. It's turned me into kind of a sap, I guess, but yeah. I'm just embracing it. Yes. Embracing it is a wonderful solution. You talking about <laughs> your child reminds me of posts maybe from a year or two ago where you realized that a whole piece of cheese toast or something had, had ended up in the dishwasher and gone through the cycle. Do you remember that post? <laughs> Like, oh, oh my gosh. You know, like that I is think so it was funny. Cheese. Yeah. A hunk of I cheese. Think it, was, it was a big hunk of Parmesan or something. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> and just connecting it to life with a small child and laughing about it. Like, oh my gosh, look at this kind of thing. How has it been, you know, balancing your maker self with having a baby, having a kid around? Do you have any tips or tricks for how you juggle life as a mom and as a maker musician, because you're also going to do gigs and you're juggling lots of things. Yeah, I'm well, I'm figuring it out as I go. (laughs) As I said, my child is about to be three next month, Dora. When she was a baby, it was really, really easy. I just either set her down on a pillow or strapped her to me and I did whatever I was doing. Um, I would bring her in her little carrier to the pottery studio with me. You know, I'd bring her to gigs and people would hold her or um, the vocalist would hold her while we played. You know, I'd wear her while I danced. I wore her at jams and at rehearsals. It, you know, had little headphones on her, so didn't hurt her ears. That was a piece of cake. <laughs> Just wear the baby. Yes. <laughs> It's when they start to walk, it all changes. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, she, you know, we were locked down at home for about two years. So I didn't have to worry about 
gigging, you know, during this toddler phase up until now, right now I'm trying to figure out how to do that. It's tricky because I don't have another adult in the home, you know, relying a lot on family or trying to coordinate if I play that, that she's with her dad that night, but it's stressing me out to be honest. And if anyone has advice about how to navigate that, maybe you could tell me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as far as like other kind of makery goes, I just do things in bits and pieces whenever I can. You know, as soon as I get dinner on the table, I'll try to eat real quick and then I'll sit there with her and I will, you know, carve something away on a piece of pottery or I will be packaging something up or I'll be painting something or I just do a couple minutes here and there whenever I can. Or, you know, every moment that she's not with me, I try to take advantage of it and use it. And, you know, the second I get her into bed, I'm back to working on whatever I'm working on. Or, you know, like last night, I got desperate. I needed to finish something. I let her watch some Curious George and I finished up a thing I needed to do that was time sensitive. You know, I had to like finish up a mug that was about to be too dried up. You're admitting, you know, that it is stressful. And I don't think anyone has that figured out. Like, it's kind of a trick question. It's not even fair for me to ask it. But in terms of people hearing other people's stories and sharing together about it's okay to do those little bits and that those little bits are still valid. It doesn't mean we should just let go of these projects. We just have to shift and change how we fold them in. Yeah. And I, you know, try to set reasonable expectations for myself. You know, sometimes... I have no soap. A lot of people want it when they, they want to buy it from me or whatnot. And it might be a few months before I have time to make some. And then I'll just make 10 bars because that's what I have in me. <laughs> yeah. I think that being a mother has made me better at setting those boundaries around myself about what I can do and what I want to do. Because ultimately, I make things because it feels good. Because I have this drive in me that needs to create something it needs to be fun and it needs to be fulfilling. And if it turns into something stressful, then it's not fulfilling its role anymore. So you're still doing soap making too. Sometimes. That goes on the list. (laughs) (laughs) Add it to the list. Yeah. I, you know, now I've started making soap dishes with ceramics. So I have to make soap to put on them. Totally. Wonderful. I like when my different art collaborates with each other. And that's one reason I love hearing about what you're up to. You are just really curious and you're actively playing around with that all the time. It's one thing to be curious in our minds, but it's another to go do some action. And it's great. It's so great. I am now. There was, you know, the first year of the pandemic, I didn't do anything and I was just creatively blocked. I couldn't make anything. It was really, really hard to start again. And then I did and in part, like I started taking a pottery class again because I knew I needed a kick in the pants to start that process because I wanted it. I needed it, but I couldn't make myself start. So I made it so that I had to, and I feel so much better now. And so actually signing up for the class is what got you going again. Yeah, definitely. I think it's good for us all to remember that it's like too much on our own shoulders to do it all. You know, like sometimes we just need some help, like go find a teacher, go find a class. Yeah. Or even like I did a lot of, or not a lot, a couple of times I wanted to do it more, but again, hard to make things happen (laughs) of, uh, you know, like zoom crafty nights with people like, Hey, I'm having a hard time getting started. If you sit there on the other side of the screen, we can, you know, do our projects together. 
I know it's in weird times this last couple of years <laughs> mm-hmm. and zoom is now like on our radar and we're all used to it. And it is a way to connect. It is crazy. Brand new way. What are you looking forward to most in the next year? I am looking forward to playing music with people like in person. That's something that I've really, I've missed that. And my heart needs it. There's, you know, a magic to performing to playing a gig, you know, with friends who you get along with on a personal and a musical level and performing for people who appreciate it, especially if they're dancing. And I want to do more of that. I'm ready for it. (laughs) And what's been filling your inspiration cup these days? I guess pottery. I feel like, you know, I've had kind of like a rare creative spark that turned into something that I really like that my skills are now closer to where I'd like them to be so that if I see something in my head, I can make it. And it's been really exciting to play around with that. Yeah. So I'm just really like putting my hands in clay lately and putting cute images on it. (laughs) Yep. It comes back to the cute. You can't escape yourself. (laughs) I know. I, part of me hates it. And part of me is just like, okay, that's just, that's just what I'm doing. Yeah. (laughs) It's the cute side of Annie. (laughs) Apparently. And I think having all the flowers outside coming out and the world coming to life, it's, it helps wake up everything inside of me too. feel inspired to create things along with the garden. Mm -hmm. It is a nice way that you're describing it because it's like nature starts to open up in the spring and all the humans do too. Step out into the sun, feel those nice feelings, walk out of our house. I love the month of May. It's not too warm, not too cold and things really are blooming and everything's bright green. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous here. I feel lucky to live in such a beautiful place where I have a lot of greenery around me. Do you have any last words of encouragement for everybody out there doing the best they can to fold creativity into their lives each and every day? Well, it's funny you call it creativity because that's something I struggle with because I feel deeply uncreative because I feel most of what I do is like I'm being a parrot, like with old time music, I play or swing music. Like I play stuff the way it was played, you know, 90 years ago, whatever I do, I feel like I'm copying something, whether it's the world in front of me or myself even, but it's the process of making that's important, at least for me. And if I put, am I being creative enough aside, then I can relish in all the good feelings that are there. So if you're like me and you, you know, you feel like you're not creative enough maybe don't worry about it so much and just try to enjoy the process of whatever you're doing and how that makes your body feel. It's almost like you're saying that's creativity as in making creations. Yeah. Like you don't need to have a genius original idea. I mean, if that's your thing, great. I don't have a lot of those, but it's a process of just creating something, you know, and if it's something that you enjoy creating, then you've done good. (laughs) 
New episodes are coming your way, and I sure hope that you click the subscribe button for this show so that these episodes pop up automatically in your feed. And if you know anyone at all who might find support and inspiration from these conversations, please do share it with them too. You can find the link to sign up for our email list in the show notes of each episode. Thanks so much to Annie for joining us today, and thanks so much to you for listening. I'm Annie Fame Barillon, and I'll leave you with a quote for the day. Cooking is just as creative and imaginative an activity as drawing or wood carving or music and draws upon your every talent, science, mathematics, energy, history, experience. And the more experience you have, the less likely are your experiments to end in drivel and disaster. The more you know, the more you can create. Julia Child. 